think in the past there has been a lot of criticism of researchers in their so-called ivory towers and I think that's because very often they came up with research ideas that really had no practical application or asked questions that frankly people didn't want to know the answers to the questions. I think um, I, could, I could not overemphasize how important this is as occupational therapists that we question what we do because if we question our clinical practice and the evidence base under that we can be the leaders of research projects which impact on a range of other professions and we can offer the best possible care to our patients. Hi and welcome to the Royal College of Occupational Therapists podcast. I'm Dan Smith and I'm Daniela Donoghue. Now you might have heard about the priority setting partnership that's been formed. We wanted to find out a bit more about what these research priorities actually mean for services and for occupational therapists on the ground. Now in this episode we've been on a bit of a journey. We've attempted to follow the path of a research project right from the priority setting through to its impact on people with experience of using occupational therapy services. You'll be hearing from Katrina Bannigan, who worked on the last research priority setting project for occupational therapy, which was over 10 years ago. From Avril Drummond, an occupational therapy researcher. And from Catherine Bruin, an occupational therapist at Nottingham NHS Trust. So let's begin by hearing a little bit about how and why the research priorities were set back in 2009. I caught up by phone with Katrina Bannigan, who's the Head of Occupational Therapy at Glasgow Caledonian University, and who led on the last research prioritisation exercise for the college. The last national prioritisation exercise was really important because of the lack of resources for research. So if you've only got a limited amount of money or time or energy to spend on research, it's really important that that time, energy and money is used in the best way possible. So by having a prioritisation exercise, we were able to identify what were the most important areas and then people could direct their attention to that. In other areas of um, academia, I suppose, or practice, People can maybe afford to be more indulgent and people talk about doing blue skies research, but we have to be really careful that we actually do things that are important for the people we serve and that we use our energy and time in the best way possible for that. We asked Katrina if she could remind us what priorities were identified in the last round of research priorities. First one was occupation-focused interventions. Then we looked at the effectiveness of occupational therapy interventions and we actually try to direct that a bit more because that was too general but I think it does also reflect the fact that there was such limited effectiveness information at the time so anything that could be generated in relation to that that would help to inform clinical decision making was really really important and then also the benefits of occupational therapy from service user perspective which I do think is fantastic because it shows that we were trying to think of the service user rather than just the professional So just staying on the subject of occupational therapy interventions, I spoke to a researcher who had a project of this type funded. The funding was helped by the fact that it answered one of the identified priorities. Hello there, my name's Avril Drummond. I'm an occupational therapist and I'm also Professor of Healthcare Research at the University of Nottingham. Avril shared her thoughts on the last set of research priorities. 
so, so uh, at that time they put forward a set of very broad criteria which was really good at the time because it meant that people could approach it from very different angles and request money for very different sorts of activities and interventions and sorts of research and I think at that point in time when they were really starting out I think that was a really good use of money and a good way forward. We asked Avril if she could share an example of a research project which focused on the effectiveness of occupational therapy interventions. And it turns out we caught her at a really good moment. So that's a really timely question because this is really hot off the press. Uh, the paper hasn't even been published, but essentially we had a PhD student who was uh, looking at um, a service in Nottingham that went from having hip precautions following total hip replacement to having no precautions. Some other units around the country have done this, but they didn't collect data on it. So our trial collected data in the first phase when people were having the precautions, we had a washout phase, and then in the next phase, we withdrew precautions from the service. And the study that um, we have done shows that effectively there were no difference between the two groups. In other words, we have provided evidence that withdrawal of hip precautions wasn't to the detriment of those patients. And I think this is a really important study because I'm hoping that OTs will read these results and it will give them confidence to withdraw precautions from their own services. Now this research project came about due to a question that an occupational therapist working at Nottingham NHS Trust had about her day-to-day -day practice. Meet Cathy. My name's Cathy Bruin. I work as an occupational therapist. When I worked on orthopaedics, I was advising patients to follow hip precautions. Um, what those are, are, I was telling people who'd had a primary total hip replacement that um, they shouldn't bend past 90 degrees, that they shouldn't twist, and that they shouldn't do something called adducting, which is crossing the legs. And that will be for a period of six weeks. This had significant impact on the function during that period. And I was aware there was no evidence for what we were advising. We were advising this because there's a theoretical risk of dislocation after a hip replacement, but I couldn't find any evidence linking the hip precautions to hip dislocation. And so I went to see an academic at the University of Nottingham. That's Avril Drummond's that you just heard from. To see if she could find any evidence and whether we could look at a research project. Following that, there were some publications. And then following that, there was a PhD, which Dr Courtney Lightfoot did, and hip precautions were withdrawn at uh, Nottingham University Hospitals Trust. So I became aware, really just being uh, questioning what I do clinically and being aware of the evidence. As well as being able to get back to doing the things they want, need or expected to do more quickly and the obvious benefits that brings, it seems that it also has a role to play in reducing anxiety for those who received hip replacements. So um, there's a variety of things that change. One of the biggest things is around patient anxiety because hip precautions were tied to telling people it was likely they would dislocate their hips. They didn't follow the precautions. And you would have people who would follow the precautions sometimes for the rest of their lives because they were so frightened and people who wouldn't have more surgery when they needed a second hip replacement because of the aftermath and how restricted they've been. 
Well, now one of the biggest things is that anxiety is gone. And um, a colleague of mine is a physio who assesses the patients at six weeks. So the biggest change for him is they're just not frightened anymore. And we're not restricting their rehabilitation because we're telling them not to move in a certain way. Now, because they have freedom to move as they wish, they're able to resume normal activities of daily living more quickly. So before we were saying you can't bend down to put things in your oven, your fridge, take things out of the washing machine, put a food bowl out for your pets. People can do all those things now. And we're not ordering equipment in a routine way. We're looking at the patient and what they need and telling them just to get rid of it when they're ready. So there's quite significant impacts on the patient and their functional recovery from withdrawing hip precautions. Avril also highlighted this point. But we have had one or two patients who knew family or friends who've had hip precautions. And when we've interviewed them, they have commented that they were really glad that they they didn't have these really prescriptive um, no movements. I think the other thing to say about having precautions is that some places say do it for six weeks, some places say do it for 12 weeks. But some people are still scared even after that period and find it's a real barrier to them just getting on with their life. And it seems the anxiety wasn't limited to those who had the hip replacements. This is Catherine again discussing the benefits that she noticed for staff and for the trust generally. So I think that one of the benefits for staff is um, there was an anxiety in staff about the relationship between hip precautions and hip dislocation. So you would hear nurses on the ward saying, why are you doing that? Because you could dislocate your hip and they don't have to watch what people do in the same way they did doesn't matter how people get on and off their beds or if people want to wash their feet that's a really big one it means you can give patients a bowl and they're able to wash in any way they can rather than restricting them because you're restricting the movements i couldn't say definitely it's decreased length of stay but the certain groups of patient wise are big the benefits have been bigger and that the nurses used to worry about so Patients who were on the ward who were confused after their surgery, who couldn't follow hip precautions, nurses were watching them all the time to make sure that they did. And that's gone now. So there's some significant benefits for um, different staff groups. And more widely, I think it focuses us as a trust on the rehabilitation of this group of patients without restriction. Um, so um, I think there's there's a kind of wider implication for the trust. One of the consultants said um, that she felt that this study and the withdrawal of hip precautions had really transformed our care and I think the greater freedom patients enjoy, I think I think it has, I think it's impacted on the trust, potentially on length of stay and on other staff groups. I think one thing to emphasise is there are still patients who follow um, hip precautions at NUH um, because people, for example, who are having a revision hip, so they they had hip replacement years ago and the hips deteriorated, they still do because there is a significant risk of dislocation, much higher for that group. Um, and uh, it's also something where sometimes patients want to follow hip precautions because they've had a hip replacement previously and they're having a second side done. But I think one of the biggest things I would say is I would really like other trusts who are following hip precautions to look at this research. And I'd really like other OTs out there who are wondering whether hip precautions are evidence-based to look at the study that's been done 
and to lead change in their own working areas um, based on the evidence from the study. Avril summed up really well the importance of having the right research priorities identified and how it's key to include in the process the voices of occupational therapists, people with experience of using occupational therapy services and their carers. So I think in the past there has been a lot of criticism of researchers in their so-called ivory towers and I think that's because very often they came up with research ideas that really had no practical application or asked questions that frankly people didn't want to know the answers to the questions. I think the fact that we have engaged um, uh, clinicians, we have engaged um, patients and carers and researchers means we're much more likely to get research which matters to people on the shop floor, matters to patients, matters to clinicians and actually which is possible because the danger is that sometimes you can generate questions which aren't researchable or you can do research which nobody really cares about the answer. So I think it's really important that we bring these things together. As you may know, the Royal College is currently working to set the research priorities for occupational therapy and the process is a little different this time around. Here to tell us about it is Jo Watson, RCOT's Assistant Director for Education and Research. Working with the James Lind Alliance on this research priority setting partnership is a huge opportunity for us as an organisation. The James Lind Alliance is um, an arm of the National Institute for Health Research which uh, has a very robust, very well-respected methodology for identifying research priorities, working in partnership with the people who use health and uh, care services, their carers, in some cases with the general public and with healthcare professionals themselves, to really focus on what's important to all of those groups of people. And here's how you can get involved in the project. There will be two surveys. There is an initial survey which basically asks people what do you think is important? What are the questions that you think haven't been answered by research that should be answered by research? Um, we take all of the responses that we get from, from that initial survey and try to um, create a set of questions that encompass all of those different perspectives and then we go back out again with a second survey asking people to prioritise which they think are the most important of those questions for us to, or for researchers to answer um, so people can participate in either of those surveys both of those surveys would be fantastic So thanks to everyone who took part in today's show Katrina Bannigan, Avril Drummond, Catherine Ruin, and Joe Watson. If you'd like to take part in the setting of the next set of occupational therapy research priorities, then please fill in the surveys that Joe mentioned and pass them on to your colleagues, and especially to people with experience of using occupational therapy services, as well as their families and their carers. It's really important that we get a range of voices throughout the process, and you're the key to helping us do that. Links to the current survey are on our website, go to rcot.co.uk forward slash OTPSP for all the information. So let's end with a few words from Catherine on how important the right kind of research is for occupational therapy and for people with experience of using occupational therapy services. I could not overemphasise how important this is. As occupational therapists, that we question what we do 
because if we question our clinical practice and the evidence base under that, we can be the leaders of research projects which impact on a range of other professions and we can offer the best possible care to our patients. And this is such a good example of that. We were frightening people with an intervention where there was no evidence for it. An occupational therapist led a clinical change which impacted on physiotherapists, nurses and doctors. It all came from the OTs 